All right, so our passage takes place 13 years after the Hagar incident in the previous passage. We're told that Abraham uh, was 86 at the end of the last chapter. We're told that he's 99 now. Uh, so Ishmael's a teenager. This passage is the unfolding of God's covenant plans and promises for Abraham. And in particular, God gives Abraham and his descendants a sign of the covenant. The longer you walk with God, the more he discloses himself to you, the more he reveals himself to you, the more he incorporates you into his plan of redemption. And we see this happening in the life of Abraham. We see that Abraham had faith uh, that justified him before God. God gives him the righteousness of faith uh, earlier. But we also see that he continues to struggle with faith and in right action, even after his justification. In verse 1, God calls Abraham to walk before him uh, blamelessly. God says, walk before me and be blameless. Sometimes the Abrahamic covenant here um, is called a, a unilateral covenant, a covenant of promise, um, or what Martin Luther, Lutherans would say, this is gospel here because there's a lot of promises. There's not a lot of stipulations. Uh, it's not law. It's not a conditional covenant. It's not a covenant with stipulations. Lutherans really divide up the Bible saying that's a promise. That's law. Gospel law. Um, but it appears to me that both are present here. If he says, walk before me and be blameless, well, that's a condition. That's a stipulation. That's a requirement for obedience law. Um, so, yeah, there is a lot of promises here. Um, God makes unilateral promises that he intends to fulfill. And men are not going to be able to thwart these promises. But God still commands Abraham to walk before him and be blameless. So it's a condition, a call to be blameless, to be obedient. Um, so both of these things are, are relevant. Uh, both of these things are present in this covenant. So God reiterates his covenant and promises to Abram. And Abram responds by falling on his face. And God speaks to Abram and he changes his name. At this point, God changes his name from Abram, which means exalted father, to Abraham, father of a multitude. And uh, I'm just going to go right into the deep weird here because it's what I derived from the passage. And you can be the judge if there's something to it or not. Um, in the changing of the names, I think it's almost like God is breathing into Abram. Uh, Abraham. Avram, Avraham, there's this ha, there's this life, this breath, this wind. Sarah's name is changed from Sarai to Sarah, Sarah. There's this ha, there's this breath, this wind um, going into it. Uh, Sarah, uh, Sarai and Sarah uh, probably both mean princess, which gives uh, credence to her kind of matriarchal position in, in God's covenant promises here. Um, but also Sarah could possibly be connected with the Hebrew um, verb uh, to struggle. Um, not totally sure. But there's that aspiration in their names, at least in the sounds of their names. We saw in the creation account that God breathed into Adam, right? And this is what made him a living being. God's breath gives life. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. 
We see similar aspiration happening when God makes Eve. But here it's Adam doing the um, exufflation, this breathing out. Adam names her Isha, woman. Woman was taken out of Ish, man. This is uh, what I believe Adam to be uh, acting as a, a, crea a creation in the image of God. God names things, creates things, breathes life into them. I think Adam then is taking on that character when he finally finds a helpmate suitable to him. He says, I am Ish, you are Isha. Um, and so there's almost this kind of exuflation here too, this acting in the image of God. Adam names her in a kind of exuflation, which is the same thing that God does to Adam. Uh, and if you take this typologically, Adam and Eve symbolize Jesus in the church and Jesus breathes life into his bride through the Holy Spirit. So I think there's something to that as well. Job says in uh, Job 32, the breath of the Almighty gives men understanding the breath of the Almighty. The psalmist says by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. Psalm 33, the risen Jesus breathes on his apostles in John 20. He appears to them. He says, peace be with you as the father has sent me even so i am sending you and when he said this he breathed on them and said to them receive the holy spirit this breathing of jesus on the apostles was almost a pre-pentecost right they received the holy spirit in this moment when he breathes on them and they receive they received the holy spirit uh this breathing onto newly baptized christians was done uh, by bishops in the early church they would breathe on them. And it continues in uh, certain Roman and Eastern uh, uh, liturgical baptismal rites. The bishops will continue to breathe on uh, newly baptized individuals in the form of a cross as a form of receiving the Holy Spirit. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is inspired, or some translations more literally render it, all scripture is God breathed. That's a more literal translation. In the beginning, the spirit ho hovered over the face of the deep. The Hebrew word for spirit is ruach, ruach, hak. There's, there's that breath aspect to it. The ruach was over the face of the deep. This word can mean breath or wind, and it's also spirit. And it's the same thing in Greek with pneuma. The spirit, that, that word can be a gentle blast of air. It can be wind. It can be breath. And... Um, that's the word for spirit in the New Testament. So all of this and more, to my mind, breath, spirit, wind, giving life, has connection to the sounds in the name changes of Abraham and Sarah. There's, I think there's something there. Perhaps there isn't anything to it. <laughs> Gotta give the qualifier. Uh, otherwise, the historical grammatical uh, guys are going to lose their minds. But uh, it's something to, to consider in light of all of Scripture. Verse 6, uh, God says, I will make nations from you. Uh, kings shall come from you. Uh, here we have God promising not just one nation coming from uh, Abraham, but nations, plural, which anticipates more than just Israel becoming a nation under the God of Abraham and the kings will come from you. God says, David, Solomon, and the kings of Israel come from Abraham. And then of course, culminating in the king of kings, the Messiah coming from Abraham. But then even after that, we see 
kings descended from Abraham outside of Israel, part of the nations. Constantine, a son of Abraham, stops the persecution of Christians, oversees the first Nicene Council, which forms the basis for one of the most fundamental creeds that Christians recite all over the earth to this day. Charlemagne, a son of Abraham, made Europe great again, the Donald Trump of the, 18, of the 800s in a way. John III Sobieski of Poland, a son of Abraham, crushed Muslim invasion in Europe on September 11th, 1683. King James I of England, a son of Abraham, made the King James Version of the Bible possible. He made it happen, influencing and shaping the spiritual life and language of Christians in the English-speaking world for centuries. George Washington and John Adams, sons of Abraham, helped birth and rule the very nation. We enjoy the freedom to worship the God of Abraham in every Sunday. Now, all of these men had flaws, morally and doctrinally, but they were all sons of Abraham in their heritage and their worship, meaning they were all Christians. Verse 8, and, and, the, and this is, kings will come from you. Look at this. If Abraham could see this, look at these kings who came from him. Verse 8, God gives the land again. But there's a difference here, and this is a strange thing to me. He specifies, I mean, this is just a general thing throughout all of Scripture. He specifies and says the land of Canaan, which is different than what we read a couple chapters before. A couple chapters before, what is, what's the land that God promises to him? The land from the river of Egypt all the way to the Euphrates in Babylon. That's way bigger than the land of Canaan. Um, so I'm not sure what to make of this except to say that it's both. And if we read all of scripture, all the earth is given to the sons of Abraham, not just the down payment land in the Near East. That's how I would harmonize that. This is my covenant circumcision. God gives the sign of the covenant to Abraham. Uh, I remember thinking as a kid, circumcision was a bizarre thing. And uh, so we're going to go through and, and see what the scriptures have to, to say to us about circumcision. Uh, so there's a, it's a sign of the covenant, we're told. When was the last time that we saw a sign given in conjunction with a covenant? Exactly. Genesis 9. God gives a rainbow. And what, is that, what does that rainbow symbolize? When we see that, what are we supposed to, what is it supposed to mean? No judgment by flood. Right, exactly. No, God is not going to destroy the earth in a flood. Uh, so the climate change uh, hysterical people can relax because God's promised every time we see a rainbow, uh, every time you see the scantily clad people dressed uh, crazily walking down the street with their rainbow flags, you can be like, look, we don't have to worry about climate change anymore. I don't think that's why they're marching down the street, but that's what you should be able to think. Um, but we see a pattern. We see a pattern develop that God's promises and covenants are paired with signs. Um, and the sign that he gives Abraham is circumcision. What is circumcision? Circumcision is the cutting away of the foreskin 
of the penis. It entails blood. It entails putting away flesh. It entails cutting off part of the phallic organ, which itself represents human strength and the fruitfulness of procreation. So it has these elements of symbolism inherent in the ritual itself. And not only is Abraham 99 years old at this point, but God has him cut off part of his penis and then proceeds to tell him that Abraham is going to have many children. And I can't help but laugh like Abraham, not in disbelief, but because I have the benefit of seeing these promises unfold from the standpoint of 4,000 years later and seeing all of them come true and continue to come true, but then also seeing how wildly over the top God went in Abraham's life in crushing the idea that man's strength and man's wisdom was going to make all of this happen. This is the miraculous sovereignty of God writ large. God's ways are not our ways. So he instructs him to circumcise. And what does our passage specifically tell us this means? What does it signify? It signifies the covenant of God, the covenant God is making with Abraham. This is my covenant, God says in verse 10. And then he proceeds to instruct him in the ritual. And in verse 11, God says, it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Okay, this is a very elementary point, but I, it's foundational in a lot of ways. It signifies the covenant. This covenant entails promises of blessing. It entails stipulations for obedience. Okay, pretty basic. What else does it signify? Paul says in Romans 4.11 that, that circumcision is a seal of the righteousness of faith that Abraham had. That Abraham had when he wasn't circumcised. So a seal in the ancient world was an engraved signet that was pressed into wax on letters or uh, various items and it indicates authenticity or ownership. It's kind of like a, it was like an ancient signature. It kind of serves the same uh, uh, purpose. And Paul says, circumcision is God's signature. It's God saying, I own this. I authenticate this. This is mine. So if it's a seal of the righteousness of Abraham's faith, it should only go to Abraham, right? Because it's about his faith. Paul tells us that. No, that's not what happens. What does God tell him to do? God says, put the seal of your faith, Abraham. Put it on your whole household. Why does God do that? Because God doesn't operate on a merely individual basis. He doesn't just save Noah. He doesn't just save Moses. He doesn't just save Abraham. God operates on a covenantal and a patriarchal level. When he saves a man, that man's household is coming with him. And so the seal of Abraham's justification was given to his entire household, his child Ishmael and all of his male servants. And of course, we know that Ishmael apostatizes. So we see that the markers of the covenant do not save in themselves, that they can be applied to men who reject the promises of God. 
And this principle continued throughout the Old Testament, and it continues up until the present time uh, with the children of Abraham according to the flesh, who are the Jews. So this promise of God um, is symbolized in circumcision. The promises of God are symbolized in circumcision, uh, and they are given to Abraham and his household, his household administration. What else does our passage tell us about circumcision? It tells us that to neglect the right is to break God's covenant. Verse 14, the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreign skin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. It's a pretty interesting thing to think about that that person, that most likely seems like the child, but the child is totally helpless in circumcising himself for a pretty long time. It's pretty amazing. And God says, that person has broken my covenant. He'll be cut off. Interesting uh, to think about. But um, it's even more strange to us that God would do this because we just don't put much stock into religious ritual and symbolism. We don't think it's important. Uh, even the symbolism that God uh, has instituted with his very breath, we downplay its relevance. We diminish their importance and we make it all about the heart. It's all about a heart. And that's true. It is about the heart. That is what's most fundamentally important, but it's also both. God's not indifferent to these external symbols. God connects the neglect of the symbol making as actually breaking the covenant. What else can we learn about circumcision from the rest of Scripture? Well, in a puzzling passage in Exodus 4, we read about God talking with Moses and God uh, informing Moses of what's going to happen between him and Pharaoh. And he, he informs uh, Moses that uh, Moses will confront Pharaoh and, and Moses is to inform Pharaoh that God will kill his firstborn son, Pharaoh's firstborn son, if Pharaoh doesn't let God's firstborn son, Israel, go. <laughs> All right, so lots of firstborn sons. Pharaoh's firstborn son will die if Pharaoh doesn't let God's firstborn son go. And then we, there's this weird thing that happens where the angel of the Lord comes to an encampment and seeks to kill him. We don't really know who him is. It's either Moses or his son, probably his firstborn son. We're not explicitly told, but if you look at that pattern, it looks like the Lord is going to kill Moses' firstborn son. That's what I think is going on. And um, so with Moses' firstborn son about ready to be killed by the Lord, Zipporah reluctantly and with a lot of disgust circumcises that son. And she throws the foreskin down at Moses' feet and says, you've made me a bridegroom of blood. Um, and I think she does this because she sees how serious the God of Moses was about giving the sign of the covenant to her child. And after she does this, what happens? The angel of the Lord relents, doesn't kill the child. The covenantal sign and seal of faith saved the child. It identified him as being a covenantal child of Yahweh in the covenant of Yahweh, that he's not identified as a child of Midian, which is who, where she was from, and he's not identified as a child of Egypt, where Moses was at at the time, 
but his children didn't have the covenantal sign until that moment. So anyway, uh, circumcision is an external symbol of covenantal identity, but it's also an external symbol of internal identity, which is that of faith, as Paul tells us, and of everything else that faith entails. Repentance, holiness, humility, all of that stuff, everything. And the Law and the Prophets elaborate this for us. Consider Leviticus 26. God is anticipating the Israelite future rebellion. It's pretty amazing reading the law because basically the law anticipates everything else that's going to happen in the Old Testament. It's like when you get super rebellious and then you get more rebellious and even more rebellious and then you have kings and they're rebellious and the law is like anticipating all the, he's like, God's like, then I'm going to send all these nations to take you out. And it's all right there in the law that's given in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And then the rest of the Old Testament is just that happening. But basically, if you read this narrative in Leviticus 26, it essentially comes to the end of Israel exhausting herself in rebellion, and they've been wrecked by the other nations and everything. And he says this, But if they confess, the Israelites, their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers with their unfaithfulness, in which they were unfaithful to me, and that they also have walked contrary to me, that I also have walked contrary to them and have brought them into the land of their enemies, if their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they accept their guilt, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham. I will remember. I will remember the land. So the law here is calling for the humbling of an uncircumcised heart. Circumcision is connected with humility. Circumcise your heart. Deuteronomy 10, the Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, you above all peoples, as it is to this day. Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. Circumcision, again, being applied to heart change. Circumcise the foreskin of your heart. Keep the covenant faithfully. Repent. Believe. Deuteronomy 30, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. God circumcises the heart. God gives you a new heart. Circumcision signifies the act of God regenerating a man. I'm moving through these quickly. We could spend a lot of time on each of these passages which elaborate what circumcision means, but I'm just giving you the skinny on each of them. Jeremiah calls on the men of Judah and Jerusalem to repent of their sinfulness by saying, circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your heart, Jeremiah 4. Jeremiah says that those who do not delight in the word of God have uncircumcised ears, that those who do not hear the word of God have uncircumcised ears. Jeremiah 6.10, to whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Indeed, their ear is uncircumcised, and they cannot give heed. Behold, the word of the Lord is a reproach to them. They have no delight in it. Moses refers to his inability to speak the things of God, to speak authoritatively as having uncircumcised lips, Exodus 6. So circumcision is connected with being able to speak God's word to power, being a representative of God, speaking to pharaohs, kings, senators, diplomats, to speak as a representative of God to the nations, to an unbelieving world. Moses says, I can't do this. I have uncircumcised lips. Of course, God provides Aaron and, and they're able to do it. But far from this idea, I mean, this was perpetuated so much for me as a kid. So I'm being honest with you. I'm having 
not from my not from my family, just from church and just kind of general evangelical culture. That circumcision was just this meaningless symbol that tricked Jews into thinking they were justified. And uh, that's not what circumcision meant. Circumcision represented the full reality of spiritual life in the Lord. It signified true faith, true confession, true repentance, and true humility uh, to be able to hear the word of God and delight in it, to be able to speak the words of God with authority. So we see that mere outward circumcision um, wasn't just mere outward reality, but internal. And we also see that having the mere outward symbol uh, didn't mean anything if you didn't have that internal reality. Jeremiah 9, uh, Jeremiah 9. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will punish all who are circumcised with the uncircumcised. Egypt, Judah, Edom, the people of Ammon, Moab, and all who are in the farthest corners who dwell in the wilderness. For all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in their heart. Jeremiah 9, 25-26. So we see in the Old Testament, circumcision is representing all the internal realities that God requires of a man. So let's review real quickly. There's about eight things here. There's more, but try to break it down into eight. What is circumcision? Number one, it's a sign of God's covenant. Number two, it's a seal of the righteousness of faith. Number three, circumcision is administered to entire households. Number four, to not circumcise was to break covenant. Five, Circumcision was an external symbol of an internal reality. Six, it represented repentance and obedience. Seven, it was administered to those who would manifest themselves as either faithful or not faithful. But notice it was administered before that. Number eight, it was signified. It signified the ability to speak on God's behalf to the nations. Now, do any of these things sound familiar to you? Do you know where I'm going with this? <laughs> yes, of course. There are, there are similarities to baptism. And it's not identical. I'm not saying it's identical. I'm not saying it's absolutely the same because it's not. There's actually richer and more meaning in baptism. Um, and in some ways, we could say that baptism is the fulfillment of circumcision. But it's not a one for one. There's a lot more things. But there are similarities that I think we would be uh, remiss to neglect, uh, to not uh, acknowledge. And the similarities exist because it's the same God orchestrating a symphony of redemptive history, which includes a melody of covenants and a harmony of signs. After the Holy Spirit is poured out on the Jewish men in Jerusalem and Peter preaches to them about Christ being the Messiah of the new covenant, they ask, well, what should we do? And Peter tells them, what does he say? He says, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Acts 2. So like circumcision, baptism means repentance. Like circumcision, baptism means remission of sins. That's what the righteousness of faith is. 
It comes the same way. Like baptism, it, it means the remission of sin, which comes the same way it came to Abraham through the righteousness of faith. So we can agree with our Baptist brothers that faith precedes the administration of the sign. We can say, amen, brother. Like circumcision, baptism carries with it a promise to entire households. Uh, Peter says uh, the promises to you and your children. And the Jewish men hearing this uh, would have immediately associated that statement with the covenantal language that God used with Abraham. My promises to you and your descendants, to you and your children. The promises uh, of the fulfillment of that covenant in Christ, the new covenant, Peter says, are given to you and your children. So there's, there's similarities. And when you believe those promises for yourself, you place the sign of the covenant on yourself and your children. The promises of God giving Abraham nations, plural, also comes to fruition here. Peter adds, the promises are to you and your children, household administration, and to all those who are afar off, as many as the Lord will call. Notice uh, something of a Calvinistic statement there. All those that the Lord will call. Um, you know, Jesus, John six forty four. no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Uh, but we see also the reception of the Holy Spirit, which is gained through baptism, which that's certainly uh, our Protestant heritage really kind of balks at that. We don't receive the Holy Spirit through baptism. Ugh, that's sacerdotalism. But that's simply what Peter says there. Be baptized, you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. Um, so we receive God himself through baptism and I think that that entails a stronger sacramental character of this new covenant rite, because we don't see that at least explicitly connected with uh, circumcision. Uh, and then even the giving of the Holy Spirit, I believe, is anticipated in the name changes given to Abraham and Sarah. Follow me here. Uh, the Lord breathes into Abraham and Sarah, just as the Lord breathed into the apostles at Pentecost. And then after the Lord breathed into Abraham and Sarah, Abraham administers the sign of the covenant to his household. And after the Lord breathed into the apostles at Pentecost, they administered the sign of the new covenant to the household of Israel. And I, th I think we're invited to see this same kind of story arc. Uh, Abraham's household administration of the covenant sign is carried over into uh, other cases of baptism in the New Testament. I'm not saying these are slam dunk cases for uh, a Pado baptist position, um, or, but they're not slam dunk cases for a Baptist position either. I'm just saying, notice a pattern here. Notice there, there's something going on here. What's the deal with this household, uh, this household pattern that we see, not just in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament? Uh, Acts 16, Lydia and her household are baptized. Acts 16, the prison guard in Philippi is baptized with his household. 1 Corinthians 1.16, Paul baptized the household of Stephanos. And then we can reasonably infer that Cornelius and his household were baptized too, Acts 10. Um, we're not explicitly said Cornelius and his household were baptized, but we see that it was Cornelius, and we see that the Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles. And Peter says, who can withhold water from the Gentiles because they have the Holy Spirit? 
Um, so there's so much that we could talk about with all of this, and time would fail me to tell of baptism as the antitype of Noah's flood, baptism as uh, an antitype of the Exodus, baptism as the fulfillment of the Levitical priestly, priestly ceremonial washings and sprinklings. But the point is that God administers his covenantal promises with covenantal signs. That's, ba that's the basics of it, both in the Old and the New Covenant. And for me personally, when I began to study what these old covenant signs and seals meant, it made the Christian rite of baptism make a whole lot more sense to me. And it also provided a basis for why I believe the Bible teaches that baptisms are administered covenantally, uh, meaning that because the promises of the covenant are given to you and your children, you place the sign and seal of the covenant on yourself and your children. You raise them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, of faith, which includes a life of repentance and trust in the Father. And of course, adult converts have to be regenerated first, and they have to confess and repent and express faith in Jesus. But once that man is in the covenant, is he to treat his children like they are aliens and outsiders of it, like they are pagans? that they exist in some kind of neutral state whereby uh, they can, as individuals, choose their God. And Baptists don't treat their kids this way. It, but if they don't, if you are teaching them to follow the Lord, why would you withhold the sign of the covenant you are instructing them in? Paul says the children of at least one believing parent are holy. Agios is the Greek word. Saints, Christians. That's what that word means. Agios, holy. 1 Corinthians 7.14, David says the Lord gave him faith at his mother's breast, Psalm 22.9. John the Baptist danced before the Lord in the belly of Elizabeth, Luke 1.41. The entire thrust of scripture really confirms a, coven a covenantal mode of baptismal administration rather than an individualistic one, and it insists on nascent faith in the heart of the infant's and children of believers. Jesus quoting Psalm 8-2, he says, have you not read? <laughs> I love when he says that. Haven't you read? From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise. What a bizarre thing to say. Well, it's a bizarre thing in a kind of individualistic, baptistic mindset, but not in a covenantal mindset. To me, it would be bizarre it would be a bizarre disjunct to see the flow of covenantal realities uh, and administration that uh, it widens from uh, household, this would be Old Testament, household, male only, one nation administration of the covenantal sign to um, household, male and female, a widening, many nations, widening administration of the covenantal sign, but your children are excluded until they decide for themselves. That seems to me to be a dissonant chord in this song of redemption. The similarities of God and his administration of covenant signs and seals for the old, from the old to the new covenant are remarkable and they expand and they widen. They don't decrease which is what we have to say if children need to make a decision for themselves, that there's a decrease of that administration. I remember being struck with awe and, and excitement at the unity of the Bible on this point. I was like, wow, that circumcision makes so much more sense now. All of these things are unified. Um, 
that it wasn't just weird disjunction, but there's a unified, meaningful, and mysterious poetry in them. I'll end with this passage from St. Paul, who makes a connection uh, between circumcision and baptism in his letter to uh, the Christians in Colossae. He says this, he's speaking to Christians. He says, in him, meaning Jesus, in Jesus, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ buried with him in baptism in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh he has made you alive together with him, having forgiven you all your trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of the requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers. He has made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. God has made us covenantal people. He has kept his promises to Abraham and continues to fulfill them. We have an ancient faith that lives because our God lives. He gives us the promises of forgiveness of sins, redemption, and life everlasting. As Gentiles, we were once called uncircumcision. We were once called the uncircumcision by the circumcision, by the Jews. But now we've been brought near to the commonwealth of Israel, brought in as children of Abraham to God's covenant by the blood of Jesus. And as Paul says to the Christians in Philippi, we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God in the glory and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Amen. The charge is this circumcise your heart, put away the flesh. Laugh, but laugh in faith. Laugh in the joy of the Lord and the exhilaration that comes from trusting and obeying his word. Don't offer Ishmael's to God when God has given you the promised child, Jesus. Oh, that Christ might live before you. This we can say. This is our hope. Christ lives before God so that we may live before God. Because the promised child came, the promises of God are kept and given to us. We are in Christ through baptism in the Holy Spirit. So make sure your baptism is not in vain. Make sure that you are living in accordance with what that covenantal right means. That sign and seal of the new covenant. You have been baptized into Christ's death and resurrection. And so now you are dead to sins and alive in Jesus. You no longer live for yourself, but for Christ. You, as the true circumcision, are to be a covenant keeper and an inheritor of the promises which are given to you and your children and to all who are afar off who the Lord has predestined. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all and amen.